Uh, over the next three weeks through the month of June until my wife and I take off for a little vacation in July, we are going to be addressing two of the most hot-button topics in the church and in culture. And so I trust that all of you will be interested to hear and learn what the Bible has to say about, first of all, sexual morality. We're gonna be talking over these next three weeks and then when I return from vacation, diving into an entire series on sexual ethics. Why does the Bible say yes to this and no to that? What does the Bible say about who we have sex with, why we have sex with them, who we don't have sex with, why we don't have sex with them? What does the Bible say about gender? We're gonna tackle this head on in a series called Sexual Ethics. I'm developing it right now. Wanted to just make you guys aware of that. One, if you have small children that you're uncomfortable bringing into um, not PG-13 sermons, but certainly sermons that may be a more provocative for a younger kid than you're comfortable with. I want to make you aware of that. Uh, and two, be inviting friends. I think that in the sexually confused, gender-confused culture that we live in, we are a bastion of peace and love and acceptance and truth here at Taproot Church. And we want to be inviting our friends and family to come and hear and learn what does the Bible say about these things. The second topic that we're going to be introducing today and this is a big one in our city, is the topic of church authority, uh, the topic of church discipline. These are the passages that we currently are in. Uh, we know that of recent there has been an implosion of a very large church, uh, and a lot of the conversation going on around that has been what is church authority, how should pastors act, how should congregants respond. We're gonna be talking about that in depth. The final thing I wanted to address before we pray at five o'clock this morning, Eastern time, a man walked into a club in Orlando and shot 50 people dead. This is the largest mass shooting in US history at this point. 50 other three people at this point are in wounded or critical condition. So there may be an upwards of 75 people dead by the end of the day. We as a community of faith who herald a God who's in control, who loves this world, have to face head on, look straight in the eye, the reality of the world that we live in, and learn to pray fervently and earnestly for God's goodness to come into this place and bring healing. And I trust that each of us have our part in that as we pray, as we weep, as we listen, as we learn, as we don't yield to the tactics of terror here in our culture, but we stand under our holy God who loves us, cares for us, and is in control. So let's pray for the people of Orlando. We'll pray for these topics that are at hand and we're gonna jump right in this morning looking at authority in the church based on kind of a paternal figure of language that Paul uses. Father, thank you so much for the church. Thank you so much for our lives. Man, this morning I woke up. Uh, my kids are safe. My family is healthy. Uh, we're gonna go spend time this afternoon out in the mountains in Seattle and and, uh, and other families this morning are waking up getting phone calls that their son or their daughter was shot dead uh, last night. And so, Lord, it's a horrific world that we live in. And we know that sin has broken this world. We know that humanity exercises decision-making ability and chooses against you, chooses what you would fight against and weep over. We know that this morning you are weeping with those families, you are grieved, you are crying. 
And we as a church stand here in the midst of this broken culture to say there's a king who's alive and who loves. There's a reason that these things are happening. Lord, as we delve into over these next few weeks sexual ethics and sexual morality and we talk very frankly and very precisely about why you have established sex in humanity, why you have established right and wrong, morality and ethics in accord with sexual behavior for humanity, may it sink deeply into our people that you're not an ogre in heaven waiting to slam the gavel down for anyone who has fun. Lord, you are a good father who wants to see your children flourish. And sexuality and sexual behavior are points of flourishing when we find ourselves walking in your will and points of hurt and pain and fear and shame when we rebel against this. Lord, as we talk about church authority this morning, uh, a topic that I don't wanna shy away from even though I am a senior authority in a church, the Bible is very clear. And our city, Lord, for whatever reasons right now has a very deep bruise. And all who have been involved in churches have deep bruising. This is a sensitive topic where there can be hurt and pokes and wounding and re-wounding and opening up fresh wounds and fear and questions and cynicism can rise in the hearts of your people. But Father, ultimately we are bowed to your authority. You are good. You are good. And so we submit to you today and we pray for clarity of thinking. We pray that the clouds would clear away, that the fog of our thinking, the cynicism, the fear, the questioning, the judging, God, that we would submit that all to your authority. And in our church here, Lord, this little church in the south end of the Seattle metro, we do pray to be a source of healing. I pray for myself and the other pastors that we would be men of God who are surrendered to you, broken, yielded, but also, Lord, that we wouldn't be cowards, that we would be men of God who are firm, who are able to call sin, sin, and seek to admonish your people and correct them for their benefit. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who submit to authority, listen to authority, respond to authority for our benefit. And so we entrust this time to you now. Fill us with your spirit. Speak to us, guide us, correct us, lead us, counsel us, and comfort us, all for the glory of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Man, I'll tell you, what goes around comes around, and in the world of parenting, that is surely true. I was uh, somewhat of a wild child. My parents are here today. Would you guys say I was somewhat of a wild child? I caused them uh, not too many, but uh, some, some, some fairly large problems from the time I was about 11 till uh, just a couple days ago, actually, when I finally <laughs> figured out how to be a good kid, right? <laughs> There seems to be a, a passing down of common parental colloquialisms that I think go clear back to Adam. Every parent at some point will utter these words when they're seeking to exercise authority, trying to control the chaos, trying to control the kids who are going crazy. Tell me if you've ever heard this, or God bless you if you've ever found yourself saying these particular comments to your kids. You'll do this because I'm your father and I said so. <laughs> what about the ominous, I brought you into this world? <laughs> you know I'll take you right out of this world. 
<laughs> oh, my favorite. I love this one. My brother and I had from 3 o'clock until 4 o'clock when my dad would get home from his job. And from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, it was full-on WWF, breaking down walls, destroying each other. But if mom ever got herself caught up in that mess, the classic, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> and then finally, my favorite, don't make me pull this car over. That is exactly what Paul is doing this morning with this frat party of a church in this little city called Corinth. Paul, like a good parent, is trying to exercise authority over kids that he loves and cares for. Paul wants to see the church in Corinth flourish. But based on their false and misplaced beliefs, their behavior is actually not benefiting them, but self-destructing them. And so Paul, in theological terminology this morning, in the passage that we're studying, says, look, you're going to do this because I'm your dad. Don't make me pull this car over. I brought you into this world. He is literally using that type of language as he sits down with these sophomores, these men and women who thought themselves so wise but were actually acting like fools, and he does it to benefit them. So what we're going to be talking about here this morning is an introduction to authority in the church. Next week, we'll get into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we deal with uh, excommunication and very serious degrees of discipline that the church is called to exercise and obey and implement for the well-being of the body of Christ, for our well-being, for our souls. But for this morning, we're going to look at this from a 30,000-foot overview in this passage, looking at why we need authority, how we respond to authority, what our authority is, who our authority is, things like that. Let's start this morning with some broad cultural thoughts, just some ideas to get us thinking, to get the juices flowing about authority and the culture that we live in and how the church operates in response to authority. Number one, we need to understand this. We live in a culture where there are virtually no moral values left except for one. The highest cultural moral value, the one thing that our culture will say that is the right thing to do, is to not yield yourself to any authority at all, look into yourself, find yourself, do as your heart wills, define yourself. This is blared from our politicians, from pop culture, presidents, and even parents have drank the cultural Kool-Aid because we swim in this aquarium of influence that says the one right thing that we can do, there is no other wrong thing to do, but if your heart tells you to do this and an authority figure like the church, a pastor, a president, a politician, a police officer comes and says, don't do this, the one right thing, the one moral virtue that you can carry in this culture is rebel against that authority, define yourself, depend upon yourself, find yourself, be yourself, and yield to no other. And what this cultural aquarium of influence has done to the church is it has made that reality, that understanding of authority, our default position as well. We socially default to questioning and challenging authority, but also our sinfulness. The little rebel without a cause within 
is given over to immediately questioning, challenging, rebelling, and opposing against any sort of authority, any oppression of one's own will is immediately questioned and challenged and opposed by our sinfulness and by the society that surrounds us. And we live, for the first time in human history, by the way, in a society that celebrates rebelling against authority. Just a quick little sociological history here. Going back to the Enlightenment is where this all began, where we began to say science will trump any sort of knowledge that we have currently. And we are enlightened. We know who we are. We're going to develop ourselves moving forward through the ages that developed into the late 50s, through the 60s and 70s, burn the bra, drop some LSD, stick it to the man, the birth of the sexual revolution, which has led us to where we are today. Socially opposed to authority, sinfully opposed to authority. And we each as believers and non-believers in this room this morning need to recognize that when I talk about authority, your immediate response is to say, oh boy, here we go, start questioning Start challenging a guy who stands up in front and talks, lights, big black book in his hand. Danger, danger, run, don't do what he says. That's our default. That's my default for sure. For sure that's my default. Number two, second idea that we need to be aware of. All authority is broken in this world. We long for a savior And so we look for authority in this world that will do right by us, fix us, lead us, protect us, provide for us perfectly. But because of social brokenness and because of sinful brokenness in our souls, there is no perfect authority in this world. So whether it's presidents or parents, we all have come up under broken authority authority that either misused, misappropriated, made mistakes, or we are currently exercising authority in a broken way, we all have, so to speak, daddy issues. We live in a daddy issue culture. Now, to honor my father this morning, I have a great dad who raised us well, has stuck it out with my mom for decades on end now in a joyful marriage. And yet, that authority, because it's broken, has still brought about brokenness in me. And now with my son, Joby, I'm passing on the good, the bad, and the ugly to my kids. And so are you. All authority is broken by sin. Number three this morning. Here's the linchpin for us as a church. We swim in this aquarium of questioning and challenging and rebelling authority as if that's the highest moral virtue, that's the right thing to do. All authority is broken. Presidents, pastors, and parents are all broken, making mistakes, deforming, self-defining, overusing, misusing authority. But the Bible still commands that healthy, maturing, growing up, becoming fully you Christians, honor, respect, yield to, and obey authority. The Bible and the writers of the Bible make these crazy, outlandish requests of God's people in the first century. Peter says to his people, honor the emperor, pray for those who are in authority over you. So we think that we've got a political climate right now that is a bit sketchy, and it is. And I'm watching and listening to Christians in their conversations over cups of coffee and on Facebook 
make these outlandishly crazy, unbiblical statements about presidents and politicians, people who are in authority over us, and Peter is saying to his people in the first century, I want you to pray for Nero. Nero, who's going to go completely mad in the latter years of his emperor's reign, he's going to string you up, having dipped you in tar, putting chicken feathers on you, and light you up to light his gardens. Peter says to the people of God, pray for Nero. Honor the emperor. The Bible leaves no room for us as people who claim to be a dependent and obedient people to be independent and disobedient to who God has placed over us no matter how broken that authority is. How in the world can we do that? First, we have to be aware that the cultural aquarium we're swimming in is wrong. It is not the highest moral virtue to say, I will challenge, question, be cynical about, and rebel against authority. That is actually damaging and dangerous to our souls. The second thing we have to recognize is, all authority is indeed broken, but, if we will yield ourselves to the highest authority, which is sovereign God, then we find ourselves in a safe haven. And we can actually pray for Hillary. We can actually pray for Donald Trump. And I'm telling you that as a Christian, I find myself more earnestly praying in this political climate than I ever have in the last 20 years. I think it's sobering that God is positioning us as a church in a climate such as this, a genderly confused, sexually confused, politically chaotic climate such as this to be the people of God to say, whoa, my God says I'm to pray for, submit to, yield and trust and honor, all these points of authority. I think for every kid in this room and every adult child of broken homes and, and, and having had issues with parents, to learn to honor and obey and yield to and trust is where joy is, no matter how broken. Now, I know that's stirring a lot, and I know a lot of us need therapy for that kind of stuff. And I don't say that lightly. I say that in all truth. But the foundation for us is biblical obedience, biblical belief, biblical honor of authority. How can we do that? We're going to answer that question, how can we submit to authority and be healthy, in three ways. We're going to look at why we need authority, how we are to respond to authority, and who our authority is from our text. Let's start here with this premise. Why do we need authority? We find out there in verse 14 where Paul writes, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Pastor Paul, parent Paul comes and he says, you need authority in your life because we behave in ways that we don't realize are self-destructive. We all have blind spots. And so this word that Paul uses here, I'm writing these things as your dad to admonish you is literally translated by the Laonida. Look, I'm writing these things to advise you concerning the dangerous consequences of some of your behavior and beliefs. Paul says, I'm your dad, and I'm coming to warn you that your behavior is not going to benefit you. It's actually going to end up hurting you. Having kids of my own now, I see so clearly why admonishing authority is absolutely necessary. If I were to leave my kids with no authority in their life, no correction in their life, never coming into their lives and saying, that's a no and that's a yes, 
if from the time they were toddlers to this day where I now have a teenager down through nine years old, I had never said to them, you're going to do this because I'm your dad. No, I'm not going to explain it. This is what's going to happen. If I had not done that, they would be dead. They would be dead. They would eat candy until they were dead. (laughs) Play in the street, jump off of stuff, do things in such a way that they think this will benefit me. 18 Snickers bars and five liters of Coca-Cola till three in the morning, playing Minecraft or whatever it is these kids are doing these days. I sound like an old guy. (laughs) They'd be dead. But because I'm an admonishing, warning, caring father who wants to see the flourishing of my kids, I come in and I say, I'm going to correct you and I'm going to warn you. Now, listen, as my kids have matured, we've gone from these seasons of, okay, we're not going to reason this out. You don't reason with a two-year-old, by the way. For those of you that are parents in this church of raising two-year-olds and and you're trying to like have a philosophical discussion about why this is right or wrong, just say, I'm your dad and you're going to do this. They don't get it yet. But as they've matured, well, now we have discussions. Now we're at character phase, especially with my older kids. And Joby, too. He's a smart, wise little kid. Now we're at character phase. Now we have conversations about why is this right? Why is this wrong? But the buck stops with dad still. You're going to do this because I'm your dad. Don't make me pull this car over. I'm admonishing you right now. The behavior that you're engaged in is actually not going to benefit you. There's an interesting thing, you guys, about submitting to authority and being able to be admonished. We are designed to live in submission to authority. Let's go all the way back to how the Bible describes our predecessors, the first human beings. However they came about, whether it was in six literal days or God brought them about using various processes, however God did that, the Bible tells the story of at some point an image bearer being born, some consciousness being aware of submission to an authority higher than ourselves. And in that place there was perfection. To be fully human, is to be able to submit to authority beyond yourself. That's why God made us. It's to be able to trust in, depend upon, live out of authority that you depend on. You are less human when you live in rebellion against authority. To be fully human is to submit to some sort of authority in your life, primarily God, and that restores a garden reality. Let me ask you a key question here before we move on from this little passage. I'm sorry I didn't get my, my notes aren't coming up for you up there. There we go. Key question for you this morning before we move on. Are you aware of how cynical you are about authority? Just a low murmur of, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. (laughs) Whoa, that hits right there, Danny. Good, good. That's less than fully you. That's a deformity of you. You've gotta swallow that jagged little pill down to your guts. That cynic in you, that rebel without a cause, that's what I was from the time I was 11, maybe, to 22. And I'm telling you, at 21, I was almost dead. Literally, like, almost dead. That cynic in you is less than you, and it's killing you. But beyond that, let me ask you this. Do you have an authority in your life, a worldly, temporal, tangible, touchable, corporeal, broken, imperfect authority, at least one that you yield to. Because if you don't, you're in danger. You are in danger. 
but Danny, my dad, this, but Dan, my mom, this, but dad, this pastor, that, but dad, or but Danny, but whatever. The list goes on and on and on of who did what to you, but the foundation we want to work from in these conversations and discussions and sermons and our HGs and Sunday mornings over these next few weeks is, do I have an authority that I am actually submitted to? Or have I swallowed the cultural water so deeply that I swim in and I, what flows out of me is cynicism and questioning and challenging first and foremost? To be truly human, to live in that garden restored reality is to recognize that you have blind spots that are not benefiting you. And you need people around you, in particular authoritative people, who are able to come in and say, in a broken way, sometimes in a mistaken way, but in some way, you need correction here. You need admonishment here. Let's look now at how we respond to authority. How do we respond to authority? Getting this understanding will help us actually to submit and see when we're not. How do we respond to authority? Paul makes this interesting comment in verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Why does Paul say that? I love Paul. I think that Paul was a bundle of emotional passion. I think Paul and I are very like-minded. I can't wait to meet the man and shake his hand and just thank him for his faithfulness. And I think in some scenarios in the book of 1 Corinthians with this frat party of a church like any other parent, it's not, don't make me pull this car over. It's, don't make me pull this car over. I think Paul sometimes loses it with the Corinthian church. I think the sections that we've read up until this point, there are certain places like what we studied last week where I think Paul is like talking to a teenager. Who do you think you are? <laughs> you think you know what you're doing? You have no clue. I brought you into this world, is his language. And then all of a sudden, like any good parent, a broken parent, he steps back from that like, oh man, that may have been a bit over the top. And so Paul's now coming to his church and he's saying, look, <gasps> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> I'm not writing this to shame you. I don't want to disparage your personage. I don't want to make your behavior be a reflection of how I love you and who your character is. And there's something that Paul knew about human psyche and human emotional disposition that I think I'm just now figuring out. Through a lot of reading, a lot of conversations with theologians and thinkers and counselors that I really respect, I am increasingly persuaded that our default emotional position is shame. It's shame. Now, shame is a tough one to dial in and define. You could, you could say it's a sense of inward humiliation. It's a sense of always being second best or dead last. It's a sense of embarrassment about life, circumstances, who we are, what we do, how we look, how we think, how we don't think. But I am increasingly persuaded that the default emotional characterization or experience and the default psychological or near even our I've been reading some really nerdy books but even our biological neurology our brains I think our default experience is shame humiliation a sense of being wrong it's interesting to me that uh, you get to the end of chapter 2 of Genesis and Glenn pointed this out to me a couple days ago and at the end of Genesis, chapter 2, everything is good, right? Adam and Eve are naked, and the Bible says they were without shame. And the next thing that happens is chapter 3, disobedience, Satan comes in, the, the hasatan, this accuser. 
disobedience occurs and all of a sudden they realize that they're naked and they have to cover themselves because now they are ashamed. I think our default position is shame and embarrassment. And I think Paul understood this. So Paul's riding along to this frat party of a church. He's admonishing them. And then he realizes that his tone could be interpreted and they would respond to it as their default position would require. Rather than hearing a loving father admonishing them, all they would hear is, you're worthless, you're valueless, you embarrass me, I'm humiliated by you, because that's how we all hear admonishment, because of our default position of shame. Could have the best father in the world who only said the perfect things to you, but because our default psyche and emotional disposition is shame, admonishment can only be heard as and through that shameful context. So here Paul says, whoa, 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 look. I'm not writing this to shame you. And from that, I want us to see that there's three ways that each of us will respond to admonishment and correction and authority in our lives. And we all do this. It's an intermingling of these three, but there's one of these three ways that we default to. Number one, this is with, this is me without a doubt, fight. An authority figure comes into your life and says, Dan, I love you. And immediately, I'm like, get your gloves on, let's go. Whatever's coming next, let's fight. Notice down here in verse 18, Paul realizes that the minute he begins to admonish them, there's going to be people that fight against that admonishment because they're ashamed. So what do they do? They cover it up with arrogance and pride. Notice there, verse 18, some are arrogant, Paul says, as if I weren't coming to you. But he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out who these arrogant people are because they're covering themselves with a false fig leaf of pride. So the admonishment comes from an authority figure and what follows is arrogance, anger, attitude, bravado. I was listening to an interview with a, uh, the, he's called the, the uh, sp- he's the sports psychologist for the Boston Red Sox. His name is uh, uh, Justin Sua. And he talked about in studying people who, who he tries to coach and help, there's always a category of people who have been raised their whole life and mommy and daddy and politicians and presidents and cultures have said, you can do anything you want. You self-define. You be who you are. Whoever you are is a star. You're a unicorn at the end of the rainbow hanging out with a leprechaun by the pot of gold. And then a coach comes and says to him, you've got an issue with the way that you throw. You need to bring the hand over the top. <gasps> They're decimated by any sort of correction. The fig leaf of, of pride and justification. So what do they do? You're not coaching me right. You said it so mean. <laughs> this is a very serious thing in the church. And in our city, I'm going I'm to grab this bull right by the horns right now in the most loving way I can. In our city right now, with, with the implosion of, of a church and a lot of the conversation going on around that being authority and how it's exercised, I think that a lot of Christians in this city, most of them aren't in churches right now. Most of them aren't in churches right now. Regardless of the sin or the non-sin, which none of us actually know all the details of, only the Lord can judge that. But I think a lot of Christians in this city and a lot of people in this city are exercising that arrogance, that fight. Admonishment had come in some way. God was admonishing through broken authority in some way, and they didn't do it right. They didn't do this right. It's happened in this church. Admonishment occurs, and all of a sudden, the entire elder board is wrong. All of a sudden, you didn't say it right. You didn't do it right. There's a fight. 
The second way, though, that we will respond because of shame being our default to admonition, to authority, is we will flee. <laughs> we will run. Now, some of you in this room, you're, you're like me. You're scrappers. Let's go. I'm going to self-justify. I'm going to point the finger. I'm going to show you where you're wrong. I'm going to show you why you're broken. I'm going to fight this out to the very end. I'm going to cover myself with a fig leaf of pride. Other people are like, are you correcting me? They're gone. They disappear. Never to be seen again. They exercise avoidance and escape and absence. And what they do is they abandon safe authority. They abandon safe authority. And they'll do it in the name of, my dad did this to me, or a pastor did this to me, but they are still running from the very thing that will make them fully human, a submission to broken authority, under a broken, in a broken world, but under a fully healed and perfect, a fully perfect God. And so, running from authority, if you find yourself here on Sunday mornings, and, and I've really been thinking through this a lot, and you find something that I say or one of the pastors says or an HG, one of your HG leaders or even just a member of the HG comes and says, you know, here's a correction, here's a word that may correct you, here's a word that may admonish you, here's some behavior I see, a belief that I see and your immediate default is, I'm out. I don't like Danny, I don't like the elders, I don't like the church, I don't like the HG leader, I don't like that they, they're getting into my business too soon, whatever. That's, that's shame, that's shame. Now, what Paul calls us to, and this is the ideal for us in a broken world, is he says, look, don't fight with me. I'm not trying to shame you. Don't flee from me. I'm trying to correct you for behavior that's going to benefit you. As an authority figure in your life, this is what I want you to do. Verse 16, I urge you then, be an imitator of me. Follow me as I follow Jesus, Paul will say later. Now, in our culture, immediately, immediately we say, what kind of arrogance is this? Paul's saying, do what I do. And like any good dad, I have literally told my children, do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> Unapologetically. I recognize my brokenness. You will do what I say because I'm your dad, and you will not do what I do because I am broken, but I want you to follow me. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing that anybody in parenting in this room can get, from this sermon this morning. I'm just gonna say it frankly. You are the authority. If your kids are running your life, repent. Turn it around. Now they'll fight against you. I wanna publicly apologize to my parents. I was horrible. And I bucked and kicked and screamed till a couple days ago. <laughs> <laughs> but you are the authority. And what we see Paul here doing is he's saying, I'm broken, but I want you to follow me. I want you to emulate me. And remember what Paul is telling them to follow. Paul is telling them, do you guys remember last week? He's like, look, we're the off-scouring of, of the world. We are reviled. We are homeless. We're threadbare. And Paul is saying, if you are my children and the behavior that you're exhibiting is not going to benefit you, I want you to follow me to being threadbare, marginalized, oppressed, persecuted, misunderstood, thought to be bigoted and narrow-minded. I want you to follow me down this road because I followed my Savior down this road right to a cross where he died, and now we are the broken bread. We are the body of Christ in this world to be servants, broken for people, caring for people, weeping over people. Follow me, Paul says. 
It was a call to follow in humility and service and gospel understanding. You know, Paul himself understood his brokenness so well. He wasn't saying, come follow me because I figured out how to be righteous and holy and just. He was saying, follow me. And when he said that, he would tell all of his churches, hey, I'm the chief of sinners. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat down with my three kids. I am broken and flawed and sinful, and I realize I'm messing you up right now, but follow me, because the only thing I know is the grace of God. The only thing I know is that everybody else that you're going to follow is broken, as I am broken, and all we can do is go to a God who says, I'm going to come into this brokenness as a baby. I'm going to live inside this brokenness. I'm going to take the full brunt of this brokenness upon myself on the cross so I can have you, and I'm going to rise victorious over it. That's the only answer I've got. Follow me as I follow Christ. Who can speak into your life, and who are you following? That's leading us to our final point this morning. Who our authority truly is. Now, I want to dispel a cultural myth. I want this to make sense so badly to you. We all are bowed down to an authority right now. You see, because we live in this cultural aquarium of post-enlightenment and now post-modern and now what some sociologists and thinkers and philosophers are calling metamodern, age, where postmodernity has lost steam, we live in an age where we think that we are self-defined. We think that we, as individuals, which our highest value, remember, is to be an autonomous individual, we think that we are exercising the highest value and that we're not bowed down to any authority. I'm my own, you do you, I'll do me, right? That's our culture, right? But some authority taught you that that was the way it was supposed to be and you submitted to that. Can I respectfully speak to the young, strong feminist in this room? I am woman, hear me roar, and God bless you, that's a good thing. You should be exercising who you are, you should be growing, you should be doing all these things, but when your self-individualized feminism brings you to the point where you can declare, I'm making my own decisions apart from any authority in my life because I am woman, hear me roar, you're living a lie. Somebody taught you that that's the way you're supposed to live. Somebody, some authority, whether it's a cultural authority or a pop culture authority or a parental authority or a teacher authority or a book authority or a blog authority or a Facebook post or a tweet, some authority told you in the milieu of influence that we're all swimming in, this is the way to be it. You are self-individualized. You are self-defining. And you're not. You're just submitting to a different authority that's telling you these words. We are all submitted to authority. You this morning, right where you are, are emulating some authority. You are. Atheists are emulating other atheists. Agnostics are emulating other agnostics. Faith people are emulating other faith people. Why? We are hardwired to depend and emulate. It's our neurobiology. We cannot do anything but see, monkey see, monkey do. That's what we do. It's just that we're a whole group of monkeys saying, I'm doing whatever I want to do, and we're self-deluded. It's a lie. It's a delusion. It's not true. It's not true. So what Paul says here is he says, look, I want to make you guys aware that there are zillions of authorities 
that you're bowing down to, but I reflect, I'm bringing to you a parental authority which is different from all these other authorities. Would you read with me there where he says, verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What Paul says there, so he uses the technical term. That word guides, some of your translations are gonna say guardians, some of your translations are gonna say counselors, some of your translations are gonna say teachers. Paul says, though you have 10,000 guides is the, is the literal Greek. It's 10,000 pedagogos, from pedagogy, teaching. Pedagogos, that's the technical word. We don't really have the, the, a modern-day equivalent. The pedagogos in Paul's day was essentially a household slave who was a babysitter. And in Paul's day, these pedagogos, these household slaves who were given to overseeing the elementary age children and younger, changing diapers, walking them to school, they had been caricatured. There are many Greek uh, paintings, I guess is what you'd call them, impressions, whatever, they weren't paintings, but pictures, sculptures of these pedagogos, and they always have a, a rod in their hand, and their hair is sticking straight out because they were caricatured as these over-authoritarian, belligerent, I'm going to get that little kid. That was the pedagogos. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, he uses language of hyperbole here, countless. In, in our language, it would be, you've got zillions upon zillions of pedagogos. What are the pedagogos of our day and age? Uh, Beyonce, Trump, your peers, whatever blog post you just read last night that you think is changing the world, whatever, uh, whatever newest diet you've adopted based on some pedagogos, holding a vegan rod in his hand, holding a paleo rod in his hand, holding a whatever. We have, Paul says, zillions of authorities that we bow down to. And then he goes on here and he makes clear that the pedagogos could be good and loving. These babysitters, these guides, these counselors, these teachers, they literally could fall in love with the family, stay with the family, the entirety of the family's life, raise the children, and be like a second mama or papa to these kids. Some of these pedagogos, though, some of these influencers, these teachers with rods, could care less. They were just there for a paycheck. They weren't going to be there for the fullness of that little life. They could come and go at will. They could leave. They had really no emotional, sacrificial, vested interest in the child. And so Paul says to us in this day and age, 2,000 years later, this book is anything but archaic, 2,000 years later, Paul says to us, you've got a zillion pedagogos you're bowing to today. A thousand authority sources that you think are telling you right and telling you wrong. Some of those authority sources may be right. They may be wrong. Some of those sources of authority that you're emulating and bowing your life to could be good, could be bad. Some of those 10,000, thousand upon thousand pedagogos with the rod shaking over your head could care less about you. And then Paul pulls the, I'm your dad card. I became your father. And what Paul is doing is in a broken way, he is saying, I am as brokenly as I can reflecting the Father's love. What is a Father's love? Well, I know in my home growing up, and I know now with my own children, it's I don't care what you do, I'm not leaving. I don't care what happens, I'm with you. 
It's every fiber of my being wanting to see you flourish. And so Paul says, which pedagogos, which authority are you bowed down to and exercising obedience to? Because you are to some authority in some degree. Which authority are you emulating? And then he says, I'm your dad. I'm not going to leave you. I'm only going to be with you, and I'm only seeking your highest flourishing. And the tragedy of our culture is that most of the pedagogos that we all bow down to, that we think are going to benefit us the most, actually bring about the greatest destruction. Because a true father will come and correct, and it hurts. And so we fight it or we flee from it rather than following it and following him. We close with this. In our broken authority that we bow to and that we exercise, as Christians, we have this amazing revelation of a God who created all the universe, flung the stars out into the heavens above, oversees the crashing waves on the shores of the seas all through the globe today, sees every bird and bee and turtle and tree, every bit of the expanse of the universe down to the smallest string in whatever theory you're prescribed to in physics. He is there in it, overseeing it, Watching it, he sees how broken it is, and he controls those who are in control. For those of you in the room that are legitimately dealing with, with unresolved, unhealed issues from whether it was, call it church abuse, if you want to call it that, which, by the way, in Taproot, if you're using the word church abuse, just be careful with that terminology. Some of what I've seen, this is just a quick off, some of what I've seen here in Seattle is you know when you're at the family reunion and the eight-year-old cousin sneaks a kiss from the seven-year-old cousin's cheek and then runs off and gets in trouble with the auntie? Your son tried to kiss my cousin? It would be exaggerated and dangerous to tell anybody in that family reunion that eight-year-old molested that girl. I think the church abuse language is genuine and it's true in some instances, but I am hard-pressed to believe that it's as big in scope as what some of us, even in this room, would want it to be. The point being, the point being, God is in control. God gave you these pastors. God is going to give you this president. As self-deluded as we are in this democratic experiment, we are getting the exact president that we want and that we deserve. That's how democracy works. We are getting who we want and what we deserve, but you want to know who trumps Trump? God. Do you want <laughs> Man, I got to keep this from getting political. <laughs> Do you want to know who's in control of Hillary and Putin and every other dictator and despot and every other kind and gentle Mother Teresa that has ever influenced the world? God. God. He is sovereign. Where is he? He is watching over, he is planning, he's preparing, he's using these pains, he's using these points of hurt, he is there in that. How do you know, Danny? Because he was on a cross. He was on a cross. Jesus came and he said, I'm in this pain with you and I am God with you. Number two, the authority that we're submitted to ultimately is a sacrificial authority. Our Father God is no pedagogos. He doesn't sit with a rod over our heads ready to bash us down. In fact, 
He put his son, and his son willingly went and took the rod upon himself so we would never be beaten down by it. So whatever pain you experience in your life by whatever broken authority has been over you, and whatever pain, by the way, you're putting into other people's lives by the broken authority that you're exhibiting right now and exercising right now today is absorbed by Jesus, the ultimate and sacrificial authority on the cross. He took our brokenness, he took our behaviors, he took our wrong all upon himself because we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And so we can go to him, he gave himself for us. And then finally, this final authority, it's a saving authority. God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't pastor perfectly, uh, which in this church is absolutely true. We couldn't parent perfectly, which in my case is absolutely true. We can't politicize, we can't counsel, we can't manage, we can't coach, we can't do anything perfectly. We need a savior to come and do for us what we can't do, and that's what Jesus did. He said, I'm here living fully human, and by the way, Jesus lived in full surrender to his father. Some of the last words that Jesus spoke before he died were, Father, your will be done, not my own. He did the very thing for us that we couldn't do. Total submission to authority. Just like Adam in the garden, the second Adam comes and restores that. And then God looks at us and says, when you trust Christ, when you let go of your trying to do right and do wrong, when you trust him, all I see is his submission to me. All I see is his yieldedness to me. All I see is your brokenness and rebellion put on him. Danny, that's not fair. That's the gospel. That's grace. That's what this whole kit and caboodle is about. This whole thing, the whole book, this thing that you guys are doing sitting here today is all about that moment where what is so ungodly and unfair saves all of us. You're gonna do this because I'm your dad. That's what your father says to you this morning. You shake your teenage fist, but he loves you. He's not gonna leave you, he's not gonna forsake you. You're gonna do this, because I'm your dad. That's what he says. When we get into sexual ethics next week, I guarantee you, everybody in this room, because of the Kool-Aid we swim and have drank, everybody's gonna be like, yo! You'll see. You'll do this because he's your dad. Number two, when the father says, I brought you into this world, he's the only one that actually can say that. And he will take you out. In all seriousness, we are all gonna go out. The greatest self-delusion of our current society is that we don't die. And there's these few select weirdos who wake up every morning thinking about, this could be my last day. Wait till your dad gets home. It's actually a joyful expectancy for us as Christians. It's something that we actually look forward to. And it, it's modeled within our own human families. It's modeled. Little kids, what happens when dad gets home? You tackle, there is just great joy. That is where we are now as his kids. Don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> Listen, 2,000 years ago, the car was pulled over and he didn't put you out. He put Jesus out. So that we could get into this thing with him and stay with him until he comes to get us. 
you're going to do this because I'm your dad. Father, we call you Father here on these Sunday mornings and we entrust ourselves to you. You are a, a sovereign and sacrificial and saving authority that we can trust. We pray for uh, presidents who are possibly to be elected in this season. We pray for Donald Trump. We pray for Hillary Clinton. We pray, God, for their blessing. We pray that you would, oh God, that you would save them, that they would come to understand who you are and what the world is, what culture is, what, what politics is. Why have you even given us government? We're praying, Father, that you would overflow them with blessings and give them wisdom. We pray for President Obama as he continues to make decisions in these last months of his presidency. Lord, right now, in this room, I want every person in this room to pray for their parents, to pray more earnestly than they ever have for their parents. And I even want the, the kids who, in this room, their dad left them. Lord, in a room like this, statistically speaking, half of these saints come from broken homes, and the other half are dealing with uh, multiple dysfunctions within their homes. But Lord, as Christians, we can start with the foundation of, in my heart right now, I'm praying for my dad. I know, Lord, that that is stirring deep, deep emotional realities for so many people. I'm praying for my mom, Lord. I'm praying for my grandparents or the people who, who raised me. Lord, we are praying blessings, joy, peace upon them. Lord, I pray over the parents in this room who uh, are just trying to stay above water, who are trying to exercise authority and admonish their children. Lord, I am praying that there would be a, a sense of peace, that even though we are broken in the way we exercise authority, we can point our kids to a perfect authority. Jesus knows what it was like to be two years old, so we can point our two-year-old to, to toddler Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be 13 and be tempted with um, giving in to the hormonal insanity, and, and he didn't. And so we can point our 13-year-old to Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what it was like to be a high schooler. We can point our high schoolers to Jesus, a perfect authority. And I pray that the authorities in this room, the parents in this room would say, you're gonna follow me because I'm your parent and I'm broken, but we're gonna go to Jesus. We're gonna go to the Bible, we're gonna be a family together, we're gonna gather in his grace and we're gonna pray our guts out till he comes to get us. Father, I pray that this morning as a church collected here on this first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection that we would yield our hearts to your perfect authority. It's scary. And I realize that a sermon like this and words that have been spoken are stirring deep emotions, some that, that haven't even been messed with. It's been lying dormant in their hearts for many years and you're wanting to stir that up and bring healing. Do that in HGs, do that in community. Lord, if some need to, to spend time talking with a counselor or a trained clinician who can walk them through memories and ideas and, and deeply primitive held beliefs about themselves to find healing, God, bring that on. But Lord, at the center of it all this morning, we have the cross. And so we come this morning to take the cup and to take the bread and to partake and to remember that you, our ultimate authority, entered into this world and did for us what we couldn't do so we can submit to you and follow you and trust you and obey you. Lord, we can only see the horrific stuff in this world through the cross because it's from there that we can still trust you and yield ourselves to you. Move in this place this morning. I pray that whatever is not of you would just fall to the ground and be forgotten. Whatever is of your spirit and the scriptures would would begin the healing work in every heart in this room.
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. We take communion every Sunday here at Taproot. There'll be people up here to serve communion to you. You can get in a line. We'll do three songs. And we take the bread, which represents a meal with Jesus. And we dip it in the cup, which represents drinking wine with Jesus. And Jesus said, look, this cup of wine, I'm not going to drink it till I drink it with you in the kingdom to come. So this morning, what's happening is we're symbolically saying we can't wait to sit down and have a meal with Jesus, our perfect friend and father. Drink a glass of wine with Jesus, and he's waiting for us. And so this is a pointer to, to what will be. And that's why at Taproot, we, we dip the bread in the cup, and then we hold it, and we wait. And I say this often, the bread's going to get soggy in your hand, and the grape juice is going to run down your fingers and get all sticky. It's because Christianity is not clean. This is not religion. This is God getting dirty for us. This is God being made humiliated and spit upon for us and so we remember the the ugliness of it because we know that that's what cleanses our hearts we don't have to get it right jesus got it right and so we'll sing these three songs and as you hold the bread meditate and confess pray for authorities in your lives repent every one of us right now is fighting some godly authority or trying to flee from it just follow your father in heaven and follow that authority yes they're broken Yes, they're messed up, but emulate them, follow them. It's for the good of your soul. And then we'll partake of communion, communion together. If you're not comfortable taking communion this morning, please just watch, just listen, just be here with us. Father, bless this time now as we sing to you. Thank you that it's the work that you do in us and not anything of ourselves. We yield to you in Jesus' name, amen.